Today we are continuing our uh, teaching series called Dawn of a Kingdom, where we're looking through the book of 1 Samuel. Um, and today we're going to be making our way through uh, chapters 18, 19, and 20. Um, don't fear, we're not going to read the whole lot because we'll be here for a long time. We're actually only going to look at a few verses right at the beginning of 18. So you can stick your finger in there if, you're, uh, if you're, you've got your own Bible. If you don't, when we do read the Bible, it'll be on the screens behind me, so you can follow there. Today, our passage is about two friendships, and that is what we're going to look at today. And the common person in both of these friendships is a guy called David. And although David is one of the most interesting and dynamic characters of uh, not just the book of 1 Samuel, but in fact in the whole Bible, um, he's fresh from his defeat of the giant Goliath, um, which we heard about last week. And Although he's, he is one of the most interesting characters we have, he actually takes a bit of a back seat in this passage, and we focus much more on the other two people involved in these two friendships. His relationship, David's relationship with a man called Saul, and his relationship with a man called Jonathan. Now, Saul is the king of the people of Israel, um, which are God's people, um, and Jonathan are his son, so it's kind of the royal family there. And what we'll be looking at is their relationships with David and how they react to him. Saul already has a, so King Saul already has a relationship with David. Um, we read back in chapter 16 that Saul loved David greatly. But as of yet, Jonathan and David have not met until now. So if you have a Bible, we will be in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 18. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own. And Saul took David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And we might be wondering at this point, what does Jonathan have left on? <laughs> it is remarkable behavior from Jonathan, isn't it? He literally never met David, and he comes into contact with him. And instead of kind of spending a bit of time getting to know him, seeing if they've got chemistry, he's just like, nope, I'm going to give him everything. And we think, how on earth? Like, he strips himself of his robe and just gives it over. Like, what? You can just imagine how this might have panned out. Hello, my name's Jonathan. Very nice to meet you. Oh, hi, Jonathan. My name's David. Very nice to meet you. Well, now we've got the pleasantries out of the way. Here is literally everything I'm wearing. <laughs> it is not a usual way of conducting a first meeting. Otherwise, we'd have a lot of fun and games in the welcome area after the meeting. <laughs> and we, are, we will see as we go through the, the passages today just what was going on here, what led to this behavior, and what was going on. It's just worth noting that both Saul and Jonathan, in their relationship with David, have reason to feel threatened by David. Because David, as I mentioned, has just defeated Goliath. And so Goliath, being kind of the figurehead of the Philistines, who are a long enemy of Israel, the people of Israel love David now. And his popularity is on the rise. 
but the royal family should be the most popular and well thought of people in Israel. And so there'd be every reason for the king of Israel and for his son, who is in line to be king, to feel quite threatened by someone who is rising in popularity. And the story of 18, 19, and 20, the chapters in this book, are the story of the friendships that Saul and Jonathan have with David. But it is these verses, these initial verses in chapter 18, that where Jonathan and Saul initially react to David and his newfound popularity, that really plot the course for how these men, not just their friendships with David and how they will fare, but actually how Saul and Jonathan themselves will fare as a result. In verse 2, we, saw, we see how Saul reacts. And Saul took David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And then in verse 4, we see how Jonathan reacts. And Saul stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David. And so, in their friendships with David, Saul took what David gave. You see, Saul's entire approach to his friendship with David, particularly from this point on, is all about himself. It's entirely oriented around his own interests. In this case, it happens to be that his, his one interest is that he cares so much about being king that then the way that he interacts with David is all about protecting that really important thing in his life. And so he only relates to David in how can I protect this really important thing? How can I serve my own interests through my friendship with David? And so because he is only thinking of himself, because he's entirely self-centered in his friendship with David, he then allows himself to feel threatened by David as David starts to rise in prominence. And so multiple times we read in, verses, in chapters 18, 19, and 20 that Saul feared David. He meant to be friends. He feared him. And Saul was angry at David. And it escalates to the point where Saul is so threatened by David that he three times tries to throw a spear at him inside a house to try and kill him. And just if you do have any friendships where spears are being thrown, maybe time to start reevaluating that friendship. See, Saul throughout his relationship with David, was only ever asking the question, how is this friendship working for me? How is it serving me? And although Saul is a very extreme example of just being totally consumed by self and only looking inwards and what is best for me, actually, I think that all of us in our friendships have a tendency to want to serve ourselves. I think it's much easier to look back on perhaps our childhood relationships and see it much more starkly. When I was about eight or nine, I had a friendship with a chap called Chris. And in terms of who Chris was as a person, I wasn't particularly fond of Chris. But Chris lived nearby. And very crucially, Chris had Sky Sports. And so every time I wanted to, I could just wander over to Chris's house, pretend to be all pally, and watch some live football on TV. That's an obvious childhood example, but actually, as we become adults and our relationships become much more complex, it may be a little bit harder to see, but I think it's still there. We often tend to value and put most effort into the friendships where we think that our needs are being met 
We pursue and put our time into the relationships that we think, oh, I, I feel valued, I feel well looked after, I feel encouraged. This is serving me. This protects some of my own interests. This relationship might help serve some future ambitions that I have. We can tend to look at the people through the lens of, are they good for me? This is actually something that is pretty personal for me at the moment, if I'm honest. Just a few months ago, actually kind of more recent than I'd like to admit, perhaps, I realized through uh, some conversations with some friends, they very lovingly asked me some questions about my relationships. And I had this glass shatter moment where I just realized, just like Saul, actually in my friendships, I don't give as much as I like to think. Actually, I'm often looking to take and to get. I have all of these personal dreams that I'd like to see fulfilled. And actually, the way that I often related to people was I was trying to, rather than just encourage them and build them up, actually, I was trying to kind of win them to myself. And instead of when I'm spending time with people hoping that they go away genuinely feeling valued and loved, I'd end the conversation and think, oh, I hope they like me a little bit more. I mean, I hope you're titters of laughter is because you can kind of see yourself in that a little bit, maybe. I think that it's a common thing for all of us and that we can all have a tendency, whatever it is that's important to us, whether it's feeling loved or valued or pursuing future dreams or protecting what we have, to look for friendships that feed those things. And actually, what I discovered when I had this realization of how I can treat my friends and, and be in my friendships, I realized that is an exhausting way to live. It really is. It is no way to live, constantly having to evaluate, where am I at with this person? Do they like me? Do they, will they maybe come with me on the, the things that I want to do in my life? It's no way to live. Because I'd, I'd occasionally then, I, it, it trapped me. I would be trapped into how I perceived my friendships to be and where, where I was at with different people. And so I'd feel good if I thought that a relationship was going well. And then I would conversely feel fearful or frustrated if I thought, oh, maybe that person doesn't like me as much as I thought. Or maybe they won't play a part in my story in the way that I hoped they might. And this is exactly how Saul related to David. Chapter 16 when we read earlier that Saul loved David greatly. Yeah, he loved David greatly because David at that point was serving his dreams and his ambitions and he was, protect, he was fulfilling a very helpful role in Saul's kingship. But then the moment that Saul looks, uh, David starts to look like he might be a threat, suddenly Saul's like, not having that. I hate this guy and I want to see him go. And similarly, Saul, then as we read through the chapters 18, 19, and 20, here's the picture of a man who is just trapped in suspicion, in fear, and in despair. And yet, as we go through the same chapters, and instead of looking at Saul, look at Jonathan, we see the complete opposite. While Saul is totally trapped in his fear and his frustration, we look at Jonathan and we see a man who is just totally the picture of joy and freedom. A man who is confident 
and courageous in the way that he speaks to both David and his father Saul, and yet carries himself with a humility and a lightness that's, that's just so absent from Saul. And I look at these two people, and I think I know who I would rather be. Jonathan does so much better than Saul. And it comes back to these first verses that we looked at. Saul, with David, was looking to take and serve himself. What does Jonathan do the moment that he meets David? I'm just going to give. He's going to give. It doesn't even give it a thought. It doesn't, doesn't try and get to know him. Just thinks, nope, just going to give. Don't care how David reacts to me. Don't care what David is like as a person. I've got no idea who he is or what he does. I've seen him maybe kill a giant, but I don't know him personally. I'm just going to give him everything. It's irresponsible behavior. What are you doing, Jonathan? Why are you doing this? Doesn't the tool think about the consequences for himself? Doesn't think about what might happen in his future? He's got a dream of becoming king, and in taking off his robe and his sword and handing over his armor, he is handing over all of his kingly ambitions to David. He's literally stripping himself of his self-interest in this relationship. Not for a moment thinking, huh, I wonder if a relationship with David could be good for me. Let's see how this pans out. Maybe he can serve my future ambitions. And initially, as you look at it, as Jonathan stands there, starkers, I mean, who knows if he was, but it's funnier, isn't it? <laughs> it looks like loss, doesn't it? Because he literally has nothing. He's given it all away. But as is so often in the way that God works with us and the way that he works and, and the, the lifestyle that he calls us to, what initially appears to be loss is actually freedom. It looks like Jonathan has lost everything, but as we track through 18, 19, and 20, we see a man who's just totally free. What motivated Jonathan to give? And what led to this freedom that we then see? Well, verse 1 gives us a clue. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Now, I think we can say straight up that that is a little bit odd. His soul was knit to David? What does that mean? Well, it's not an act of David, and it's not an act of Jonathan. This is something that happened to them both from outside. This is a work of God. This is an expression and an experience of God in Jonathan's life that then knit his soul to David. Before Jonathan was able to express something of God's love, he had to first experience God's love. Jonathan, in verse 1, this knitting of the soul was an experience of God's love, which is by its very nature self-giving and sacrificial. He received that in his life, and it's only after that happens, his soul was knit to David, and then Jonathan loved him as his own soul. 
And we now know a different expression of this very same love. We are now much more familiar with what this self-giving, sacrificial love looks like. It's described later on in the Bible like this. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, or stripped himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jonathan received the self-giving, sacrificial love of God that we now know expressed in the form of Jesus Christ. And just like Jonathan, Jesus once knew what it was like to live royally. He lived in heaven with his Father. But just like Jonathan, he willingly and freely stripped himself of that. He didn't see it as something to hold on to, as something to grasp, but he stripped himself of that and came to earth in human form. And just as Jonathan, after stripping himself, gave, so did Jesus. He gave his life so that we might have our souls knit to Jesus, that we might know a knitting of our souls to him and experience the friendship of God in our lives. And if we choose to accept the friendship of God into our lives expressed through Jesus, then we too can experience the self-giving sacrificial love that Jonathan experienced here. Because it's in this context of joining with friendship with Jesus where we experience this love that we realize that actually all of the needs that we could ever have in friendship are met in the person of Jesus Christ. Just as Jonathan gave up his robe to David, Jesus gave up his robe to us. He hands us his robe and says, you are now clothed with royalty. You have worth. You have dignity. You have status. He looks at us and he says, your life now means something. You have significant value. He gives us his armor. And he says, you now have a friendship that is safe and secure. That is unlike any earthly relationship. I'll never turn away from you. I'll never abandon you. I'll always be here for you. I'm a safe place for you. And he hands us his sword. And we receive a friendship that is empowering and encouraging. He looks at us and says, right, you now have purpose. And not only am I sending you on a mission, not only am I giving you something to do with your life, but I am going to be right there with you and I'll give you the power and the strength to do it. Everything that we could look for in friendship, we now found met in the person of Jesus Christ as we enter into relationship with him. These things that Jesus says to us, they're not just motivational things that we might find similarly on a Facebook post. These are the words of the real, living, 
Jesus Christ, who now is highly exalted and sits in heaven as King of heaven and earth, that we now know through his Holy Spirit, we know him personally and we now know him as friend. And this is the same, although Jesus didn't come until a thousand years later to earth, Jesus is the expression of the everlasting, eternal love of God. The same love that Jonathan experienced. And so as Jonathan experienced this love in verse 1, he knew all of his relational needs were met immediately in God. And just as the same for us, we now have all of our needs met in Christ. And it is that that then leads to freedom. It's a freedom from, Jonathan knew a freedom from having to live and conduct his friendships like Saul does. Why would he? Why would he have to try and get from his, from his earthly relationships? Why would we have to try and look at one another and try and get from one another when we increasingly come into an understanding that everything we need has been found in Christ? We don't have to live like this in a way that leads to fear and frustration and despair and anxiety over where do I stand with this friend? doesn't have to live like that. doesn't have to live trying to protect his own interests or try and serve himself because Christ is protecting his interests because Christ has served all of his needs. So he is free from having to live like Saul. But he's also free to live in a completely different way. He's now free to love others just as Christ has loved him. To conduct his relationships in a completely new way. In a way that as we read it initially, we just think, this is nuts. But it is the freedom that God has given him to live in a new way. Just as because Christ has abundantly and God has abundantly provided for all of his needs, he now no longer has to look elsewhere. And because he's received so much, he's free to give. As we receive the love of God, it changes us and leads us to a freedom to give. If you were here at the back end of last year as we went through our generous series, you might recognize some of these principles from why we give our money. can look a bit odd. Why would we give money to things like this? But when we recognize just how much God has given us, just how much we have received from him, actually the only logical response is to give. And again, what might at first feel like and appear as loss, oh, I don't have as much, actually it's an expression of and leads to true freedom. And as Jonathan continues through these, ver- these chapters, experiencing and expressing his freedom that he has in his relationship with Jonathan, we get an insight, sorry, with David, we get an insight into what freedom in relationships that we now have because of Jesus looks like. Initially, as we saw in, chapter, in verse 3, but we also see uh, later on in chapter 20, Jonathan made a covenant with David. There's a word we don't use very much, but essentially he just pledged in his heart, I'm going to love this man. Regardless of what he does for me, 
doesn't matter how he responds. I have made a decision in my heart. I am just going to keep loving him, keep giving to him. And for me, that has been like almost a life changer to go from the place of feeling pretty low about myself when I had the realization that this is how I conduct some of my friendships, that I am trying to get from people rather than give. And realizing and understanding and appreciating the freedom that Christ has given me to not have to live like that anymore and be able to live in a different way, I just made a decision. I just said, I can't live like that anymore. I need to live like this. And I'm very much a work in progress. I'm still getting it wrong, and I find myself slipping. But as I consciously keep making decisions, an active choice, a covenant almost in my own heart, that whoever's in front of me, I'm just going to keep giving myself to them. I'm going to keep loving them. You know, there is no better feeling than seeing someone flourish in their growth in God, to see them start to move into everything that God's called them to, to see them growing in their understanding of him, their appreciation of him, loving him in a real way, and to not be dragged back by those toxic thoughts of, oh, wonder what this might mean for me. Wonder how this could benefit me. Or worse, I wonder how this threatens me. Those are awful thoughts. But as you move away from it and you choose to move away from it, you find freedom from it. And you can just celebrate with people as they grow in their love of God and as they change. So Jonathan made an active choice to love David. He also spoke well of David to others. In chapter 19, it literally says in verse 4, And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. And said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David. David, Saul's, Jonathan's decision to love David was not just, oh, when I'm with David, and then I, when I'm not with him, oh, free from having to give myself to him. And in the company of someone like Saul, who's not David's biggest fan at this point, it'd be very easy to slip into, oh yeah, David's not so good at this, or... He's not that nice to be influenced by the people he's around. I mean, we've all been there, haven't we? But again, Jonathan continues to make an active choice and he chooses to speak well of David in front of people who wouldn't approve of that message. We can learn some things from that. And you know, that is how... Christ speaks of us to the Father. In the book of Romans chapter 8 and in the book of Hebrews chapter 7, we read of Jesus is in front of God the Father, continually saying to the Father how great we are. That's what he's doing. And it's not because the Father needs convincing. It's just an overflow of how much Jesus loves us that he keeps saying to the Father, this person's so good at that. They're gifted in this. They're maturing in here. Because he loves us. He speaks well of us to God the Father. And finally, Jonathan looked for God in David. Because of the work that Jonathan had experienced in his own life from God, he was utterly convinced that God was at work in David. He knew he was. And so he looked for where that was. 
he looked for the potential that God might have put in David and saw, started to think, what could my role be in helping that potential develop into what God wants it to? How can I help this happen? He looked at David, and however conscious this was in his thoughts, this is basically what happened. He saw that David could be a future king, and even though that was his own personal desire, he looked at David and said, he could use this robe, he could use this sword, he could use this bow, and I want to be a part and play my part in helping him get there. I want to build him up to that place. I want to give him the tools to explore his future potential in God. And he committed himself to it, to go as far as it takes to see it happen. In chapter 23, we see it. This is the last interaction we see between Jonathan and David. Jonathan says to David, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Now, we might not be dishing out swords and armor and robes, but what we can do is we can speak truth into people. We can affirm what God says about them so that that strengthens our friends. And we can also tell them where we think they might be gifted. I think you're really good here. Have you noticed how you actually are able to do this more ably than others? Sometimes we need people to tell us what we're good at. You can play that role for someone else. And look for opportunity to give yourself to them, to help them start to realize and move into what God has called them to. Our home groups are a fabulous place to start to put some of these principles into action. Because although in your home group, I'm sure you love everybody and it's easy to get on with most of them, we don't choose everybody in our home group, do we? And so there'll be some people there that are natural fits for you and you, you get on really well with, and there'll be other people who it will be more of a decision. I'm going to choose to love this person. But this is what Christ-inspired friendship looks like. And this isn't just a nice model for how to do friendship. Wouldn't it be lovely if we all lived like this? These are revolutionary friendships. These are friendships that strengthen, that build up, that encourage and equip for battle. These are friendships that we need if we are going to move into everything that God has called us to do as a people. These are the friendships that will have to be a part of who we are. If we're going to make an impact in this city, if we're going to change and have our, play our part in changing this country for Jesus, as we look to send out different churches into different cities, we must be a community of people who genuinely give ourselves to each other. Because these aren't just the relationships that we need, a little club on a Sunday. These are the relationships that the whole world needs to know and experience. Chris. This story ends in chapter 20 with Jonathan saving David's life from Saul. Once again, Saul tries to take David's life, but Jonathan gives David life. And they part almost for the last time in this way. Then they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. 
David wept the most because receiving this kind of self-giving, sacrificial, self-denying love is life-giving. It changes you. It moves you. And it's what we need to fulfill our potential. And as we move through the chapters, David is very much going to come to the fore. And Jonathan is very much, we're not going to see much more of him, fall to the background. And David will become the hero, and David will be the one that we think about and talk about the most. But it's just worth thinking, without this self-giving, self-love, self-giving love of Jonathan, where might David have been? Who knows? Let's worship, shall we?